Welcome to the Starfire Coats podcast, where we discuss metaphysics, survival, the media, and the truth. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Amy Pitchell. We're here today with Megan Crawford. Megan is co-founder and managing partner of Space Fund, a venture capital firm investing exclusively in outer space startups. An entrepreneur, business educator, space industry pioneer, experienced executive and investor, Megan co-founded the world's longest running space business plan competition and has taught, coached, and advised hundreds of space startups through their earliest stages, including some of the current generation of successful companies. A leading advocate for women in space, she's also the host of the Mission Eve podcast. Megan Crawford, part one. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Demi. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So tell us a bit about Space Fund and tell us how you got started with that. So um, I like to always say that my perfect job didn't exist, so I created it, right? Um, the uh, the background here is that I'd been working as an executive in startups uh, in the space industry for a number of years, and we had an exit, which is in the startup world, always a good thing. And um, as my co-founder of Space Fund, Rick Tomlinson and I were looking around for what was the next best thing we could do for the industry. The biggest complaint we were getting from our friends and colleagues, these brilliant entrepreneurs, was that they, they weren't getting funding. The traditional Silicon Valley VCs uh, were investing in launch because you know Elon has a launch company and Jeff Bezos has a launch company and uh, Richard Branson has a launch company. So I need a launch company, right? Yeah. Uh, that's not really a good investment strategy. And so <laughs> we, uh, we founded Space Fund to kind of be the bridge between those traditional financial markets and the space world. As kind of uh, experienced space entrepreneurs ourselves, we, we felt like we had a better understanding of the market and where the opportunities were and a better capability of helping these entrepreneurs get through these kind of sticky situations that startups find themselves in in general and, and specifically to the space industry. There's, you know, obviously every industry has its unique, uh, unique issues and, and, and um and roadblocks and so um we founded space fund in 2018 to really kind of fill that gap and um have been having a fantastic time ever since that's awesome so uh you know when you um when you started it out what were you envisioning for that and how has it grown since then so of course we had a huge vision when we started because that's what you know <laughs> we're a space startup ourselves right and so we were going to go out and raise a hundred million dollars in, in six weeks and it was all going to be amazing <laughs> um no ob obviously we're you know uh we had to be a little bit more realistic than all that but um our vision still is fundamentally to to get to the level where we can um we can fund startup companies throughout their life cycle but just like any startup, we had to start small. So our first fund was effectively our friends and family round. We called up everybody we knew. I, I begged my dad to write a $20,000 check. You know what I mean? It was, it was that kind of uh, friends and family round to get that first fund together to prove this concept, um, which we were effectively able to do. And then on the back of that raised a, a much larger fund too. Um, we currently have about 20 million under management, which in the VC world is still very small, uh, but in the space financing world is not anything to sniff at. Um, but as our companies continue to grow and expand, we we need to continue to expand and have more funding for these later stage rounds. And so um, my personal goal, and I have told my, my co-founders and my partners that um, 
once we get 100 million under management, I'm dyeing my hair purple and not wearing makeup anymore because then, <laughs> then it won't really matter. And then it's all it's all uphill from there as we get uh, closer to, to the visions that we have for an economic system that operates in space, that has its own um, financial mechanisms and, and its own ability to be independent of the um, the Earth-based economic system. Now, that's still a few years off, but that is eventually the long-term goal. So tell me more about that. What's the vision for creating this economic system and, and how will that function? So, you know, the the best analogy here, and, and I know this is one that's used a lot and your, your listeners and, and viewers may have heard this before, but really the only thing kind of in living memory that we can compare this to is the American Wild West, right? There are no laws. There is no governance. That means there's dangers. That means there's a lot of danger. There's a lot of risk, but there's also a lot of opportunity, right? And uh, we have the capability here for the first time in generations, uh, maybe since the founding of the United States of America, to set up entirely new political and economic systems. And any economic system, any political system is always slow to react. And you want it to be that way. You don't want to have knee-jerk reactions in your political system, right? You want things to evolve slowly. But the side effect of that is when we're in such a hugely expansive technological time that we're in right now, um, governments and economic systems aren't keeping up. And so with space, we have the opportunity to start anew, build new economic systems, build new political systems, and build tons of them and test them out and see if, how they work on on different, uh, you know, and, and different uh, settlements and different um, you know, and even before we get to human settlements, writes about robotic spacecraft's ability to operate in and near each other, right? There's there's all of these different machinations of making the space industry successful that um, that are these wonderful problems to solve. And every time I see a problem, I see an opportunity. And so, um, and from the economic side, we envision an entire supply chain of things happening in space without any need for intervention from Earth. Eventually we'll be mining resources from the moon and asteroids. Those resources will be the raw materials that go into the in-space manufacturing of habitats and satellites, uh, of the, the gas to refuel those habitats and satellites. And all of those transactions, that entire supply chain can, incur, can occur without any accountant sitting in a dark cubicle somewhere sending a chase wire transfer that takes three days to go through right um and so we're very interested in the crossover of you know kind of crypto technology blockchain technology and how that can it's very difficult to apply those technologies to legacy systems mm -hmm. but when you're creating a new system with those technologies in mind from the beginning, you can really create something that works. And so, you know, from an economic uh, perspective, we're very interested in that. And and then the political perspective gets gets very interesting indeed. So when you were um, conceiving of this and and coming up with, you know, different ways to implement this, what were some of the uh, the structures that you thought of that you think would work best in that kind of a scenario where you are, you know, um, transferring large amounts for, you know, resources and, and um, you know, making these these transfers without having to, you know, bounce back to earth and, and back up and, and actually make those transfers 
out there. Um, what systems did you think of that, that you think that based on your, your initial um, interaction with crypto within the space, regardless, that, that you think would, would work best based on what you've seen already? What struck me the most, where I had my aha moment, um, was in knowing a lot about how um, spacecraft dock with each other, right? This is what we call RPOD, rendezvous proximity operations and docking. It's very difficult. These, these things are moving at thousands of miles per hour. It's all done robotically. And it, it's, it's a very difficult process, but one that we're getting much, much better at. And the way that those spacecraft find each other and orient in order to be able to dock is by the use of QR codes. And the moment I saw a crypto transaction that happened using a QR code, I went, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? And so, so the same technology, same basic, you know, simple QR code technology that's helping these spacecraft dock. Well, then once they separate, one spacecraft can send a message to the other. Yes, I've received all of my fuel. And that same QR code can be used to uh, initiate a smart contract that allows payment to transfer for that fuel. And so it seems to me like a no brainer. Why wouldn't you just build that in from the beginning? So explain a bit about smart contracts too, for just for anybody who hasn't you know, encountered that idea before. So this is another way to keep humans out of the loop. And in space, we love keeping humans out of the loop. Um, humans <laughs> are squishy and terrible to try and keep alive in space. So the more we can do automatically, <laughs> the better. Um, but so, you know, a smart contract is something that's been developed based on blockchain technology, which allows a contract to be executed without a human in the loop. So once certain mechanisms are met, the contract is executed automatically um, without some, like I said, accountant in some cubicle somewhere having to dig through hours of legal paperwork to ensure that all the boxes have been checked. That can all be automated through a smart contract system. Fantastic. So, you know, as you're developing this with the smart contracts and the QR codes and, and you're seeing the different um, development of, of cryptos, you know, that's that's happening here, whether you've got, you know, centralization or decentralization and different um, ways of navigating those spaces and, and keeping those spaces um keeping people with the ability to have that kind of privacy, you know, intact with, with their, with their transactions or, or, you know, in, in the case of centralized currency, having that, you know, um, having all of those transactions tracked, um, which direction are you seeing space going and, and which direction are you seeing that people are, are moving, you know, as far as their thoughts and ideologies about how that might look in the future like any human situation um there is definitely a <laughs> a, a, a big diversity and a, and a kind of a, a, a wide spectrum here on how people are thinking about this on the one hand you have the group that i lovingly refer to as my space pirates um <laughs> and then on the far end of the other spectrum you have nasa and other federal agencies of the united states right and so obviously they're going to think about things quite differently. And so what we're really seeing is that, you know, the space pirates want to go fully decentralized. And there's this movement now that, you know, if if you earn crypto in space and, and keep it in space and spend it in space, what government has the right to tax that? 
mm-hmm. if it never comes back to earth, right? And so you get your your libertarians and your decentralizers just absolutely ecstatic about this opportunity. And then on the other hand, you have NASA and the US Department of Defense and, and other national governments wanting to operate very much within the rules and the boundaries that have already been established. And so the reality is, is you're gonna have this spectrum. Um, it's very, it's gonna be very, very hard for the earth to regulate space once it really does take on a life of its own. Um, it's gonna be really hard to impose that. There is no space police. There are no space tax collectors, right? And so, um, and, and so it's gonna be fascinating to watch this develop. Um, my personal belief, and, and, and maybe this is more of a hope than a belief, <laughs> is that we're going to land more on the decentralized kind of uh, open system side. Um, regulations will occur, whether these are groups of people that are self-regulating, um, whether this is some international body on earth that's able to successfully impose some regulations. But that's really mostly people are concerned about safety now. Mm-hmm. Um, more than anything, um, safety of humans, safety of assets on orbit, making sure people aren't bumping into each other. Um, but outside of that, this is this is pretty wide open uh, space here. In in the business world, we would call this a, a blue ocean strategy. Fantastic. So, um, talk more about um, the growth that you're seeing within the space industry. Uh, you know, in, in the past few years, you know, especially with um, with movement into you know creating additional agencies and and movement toward um, you know creating additional opportunities for investors. You know, how how much growth are you seeing here, and and what um, what are you seeing you know moving forward into the next you know 10, 15, 20 years. So the key word here is accessibility. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to our kind of American Wild West analogy, um, the railroads, the railroads fundamentally changed three quarters of the American continent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that frequent, reliable, affordable access. And that's effectively what Elon and SpaceX have done. Mm-hmm. They have brought the cost of launch down by orders of magnitude. They have increased the frequency by orders of magnitude, and they have increased the safety by orders of magnitude. And those three things combine to create access to space like we've never seen before. And the fallout of that is that we have seen the space industry double already in the last decade. And we we expect, just like Moore's Law, those doublings to start occurring faster and faster and faster. Um, by some estimates, and the numbers vary, the space industry is worth about $500 billion a year right now. Most analysts expect that to be a trillion dollars or so within less than a decade. Um, but again, it's increasing at an increasing rate, right? And so we're starting to see that exponential growth. In the venture capital world, we call this the hockey stick curve, right, where you have kind of a slight increase, slight increase, and then all of a sudden you take that kind of left turn and go straight up when you get to that exponential growth. We're at the knee of that curve right now in this industry. And so um, I have very high expectations. I try to not, uh, you know, I try to meter myself so that I'm I'm being a responsible finance professional. This is not investment advice. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But so... um, that's, you know, that's by every estimate, by every analyst, you have the big banks, you have Deloitte, you have all the kind of big names coming in over the last couple of years as they're finally starting to see what um, what we've seen for, for about a decade now. And so um, 
that's really the key to this is managing that growth. Like any startup sector, there's going to be a lot of noise. There's going to be a lot of hype. There's going to be a lot of failures. That's par for the course. Um, but the growth is is increasing at an increasing rate. And there's there's no way to stop that train now that it's left the station. Fantastic. So um, we had been talking about this in the past, and I wanted you to explain this because I just I thought this was so smart of you to have, you know, gone in this direction. Um, when you were first developing um, the, the theories behind the tokenization of, of Space Fund, and you wanted to find ways for people to be able to exit, you know, without having such a long lead time on when they would be able to exit from their investment. How did you end up structuring that? And um, and how did you um, end up presenting that? Because I, I just thought that that was so amazing when we were discussing that. Yeah, so one of the biggest um, barriers to entry for investors in the space industry, there, there's really two. Um, the the biggest pushback we got from investors who were interested, they're inspired by this industry. They see where it's going, but they say, man, that's too rich for my blood. These companies take too much money to get started and they take too long. Uh, most investors work on a seven to 10 year investment horizon, right? And that's professional investors, that's individual investors, that, that's just kind of the industry norm. And the conception was that the space industry, um, these companies weren't gonna develop to the point of exit within that seven to 10 years. So we had looked very deeply at the concept of fund tokenization, which is a blockchain technology that allows um, securities, private securities, like, like an interest in a fund, to be traded more easily. Um, right now, it's a very difficult thing to do. And organizations like the Securities and Exchange Commission here in the United States have kind of purposely made that difficult as a way to protect consumers. So consumers don't get, uh, get you know, <laughs> end up buying into a, a railroad company that doesn't exist, right? Um, and so those protections are good and fine, but it does make transactions of these private securities very very difficult so just like this idea of uh, smart contracts we were just talking about the idea of tokenization would be a way to automate that process to make it easier for people to exit um you know uh, private security investments like those in our fund um however we were maybe a little bit too excited about that back when you and I had that initial conversation. We've been watching the developments there very, very carefully, but it turns out it is a very difficult problem. It's a very complicated problem to put together an exchange that has all of these security regulations built in, especially when you start to look at it at an international scale. How do the securities laws in the United States jive with the or don't jive with the securities laws in Singapore, which is where maybe your potential buyer is? And so this is a problem that's still being worked on by people who are much smarter than me in this area. Um, it's an area we're still watching develop very, very carefully and we think could be useful um, for longer term investments like ours. Um, so we're, we're definitely keeping our ear to the ground. But in the meantime... Um, we've done a lot of proprietary research, and now that we're five years into the fund, we've been able to prove that the average age at exit for most space startup companies is seven years. And so based on the data that's coming in, um, we think that we're helping kind of quell that fear just by just by the nature of, of how the industry is changing, um, but still very much think that tokenization will 
make private investments much more ubiquitous and much more easy to access, especially for international investors. So we're still very excited about that potential. That's fantastic because initially I remember when we had been discussing it, um, the the fear was that people would perceive that this was a 30 year investment and and coming back down from that and being able to prove that that's a seven year investment at this point. That's fantastic. You're, you're able to actually show that with your data over the past five years. So th that's amazing to me, you know, especially like having looked at it from that way and, and then having been able to, you know, um, even think about shortening it at that point, you know, the thinking that it was 30 years when that was going on. And, and that's, that's within the window, but it's at the beginning of the window. It's not even mm -hmm. toward the end of the window, which is fantastic. And there are obviously exceptions to every rule, right? Mm -hmm. There there was one uh, space company that we found that was 112 years old when it exited. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it started out as an yeah. aviation company, right? So right. you've got your outliers for sure. Um, and SpaceX and Blue Origin are both 25 years old right now with no, you know, side of exit um, on, the, <laughs> excuse me, on the horizon. And so, um, but the, the, those big names, the the SpaceX's and the Blue Origins of the world, are just the tip of the iceberg. There's thousands of more companies out there working on really exciting projects, and that's where we're able to pull this data from. Oh, definitely, definitely. And and those other companies are are being designed to be legacy companies that don't have those quick exits too. These other companies that you're talking about, the smaller ones that are working on, you know, maybe one or two projects, they they have, you know, the the end site of that project insight to to create an exit there. Is that correct? That's correct. And also by the nature of the market, the market is changing. Private equity firms are getting involved. A lot of the early startups are getting big enough that they're acquiring the smaller startups. Um, there's a company called Voyager, full disclaimer that we are invested in, uh, that set up its company to be able to go out and, and make these acquisitions, to, to put together a group that could compete with uh, aerospace prime like Boeing or Lockheed by by taking the um, the disparate um, capabilities of these startup companies and winding it all up and together into one firm. Redwire, another company that's doing something similar. And also with the um, interest of the public markets, we are seeing more public market exits, not just this M&A activity. So as space matures, you're going to see these exits coming faster and faster as there's more off ramps for these companies. So you were talking about in the past, you know, um, the way that space strategies are developing, even within, you know, um, companies that don't involve space, just because of the trajectory of, you know, where their investments are going and, and where we're going as a society. Um, you were talking about basically everyone needing a strategy. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so there's a couple of points to this um, about everybody needing a space strategy, whether you're a company or an individual. I'm talking to I'm talking to people too, not just companies. But um, so for companies, like the I think the best example here is Earth observation data. This is the first time in human history that we can have a live, real time look at what's going on in our planet 24/7, and it's not just the governments that have access private citizens and companies can have access to this data. One example, um, I'll give you two examples actually that I really like. Um, the financial markets, when they're trying to, to make bets, are they gonna short or long 
uh, a stock, let's call it Walmart as an example, right? Um, I've got an investment in Walmart. Do I want to sell it? Do I want to buy it? Do I want to do a long? Do I want to do a short? How do I think Walmart's going to do this holiday season? Well, now there's technology that allows those financial analysts to get reports on how many cars are in the Walmart parking lot during the month of December, based on this earth observation data, I can now make an informed decision about what I'm gonna do with my stock portfolio as a financial analyst. Um, another great example is a company that is taking uh, data from satellites to determine how full oil reservoirs are in, um, in ports all around, the, all around the world. And so now whether you're an oil company or whether you're an analyst trading on oil futures, you have real-time data of where all the oil in the world is based on this satellite data that's coming down. So there's this real business financial implications that, uh, that really can't be ignored. And then on an individual basis for, you know, uh, coming up in, in, in the oil and gas industry, being a Houston girl, I like to say, if you have any skill set that's a, that's um, applicable applicable to the oil and gas industry, that skill set is applicable to space. One of the biggest problems we're having in this industry right now, I sit on the board of directors of a lot of the companies we're invested in, and every board meeting I hear this, um, our biggest problem is hiring. We can't find enough qualified people, and not just spacecraft engineers. We need HR people. We need marketing people. We need accounting people. We need front office folks. We need all all of the skills, right? We need welders. We need whatever whatever that skill set is. Um, we need that in the space industry, and we're growing so rapidly. We don't have enough people to fill the roles. So I like to challenge people to think about. Um, what you might be able to participate in in the space industry, uh, because we need you. We need all the help we can get right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's been a big push to um, to even um, grow skill sets as far as that goes, because the the growth has been so rapid that um, you know even you know trying to source people out of the people that everyone already knows. It's it's growing so rapidly that you're having to pull people in from other areas. You're having to uh, to incentivize, you know, bringing them in, and um, and people have been going after different skill sets, like like you mentioned welding, different skill sets like welding, where you know that would definitely translate to you know something that would be um, useful out in space because you would need to be able to you know um to do that to fix the machinery that's out there you know like once it like, fix the robotics and everything so um you know even to um to figure out any sort of way that the skill sets that you have translate into other skill sets that are needed and then to move forward in that direction um you know through growing hr to even take in all of these people like the intake would be insane on that too Absolutely. And this is one of the things we help a lot of companies with because they raise an investment round from investors like us so they can do that expansion. And then they go, oh, crap, this is hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, and so, you know, we're here to help and we have resources to help with that. But but yeah, it's, and that's typical growing pains in any industry that's growing as quickly as, as we are. Um, but we have the benefit in space of being a very inspiring industry. And so we're hoping to capitalize on that to get the talent we need. Yeah, people people want to go and people have dreamed of going since they were children. So a lot of the time, you know, it's uh, it's easy to, to capture into that dream and and make that translate into, you know, being able to attract people. And I'm sure, and you know, like that's built into that. 
And the biggest hurdle is, is just like with the investors we speak to say, oh, no, 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 that's out of reach for me. Um, it's, it's potential employees as well saying, oh, I could never work in the space industry. I'm not a rocket scientist. It's like, no, no, no. I've got a rocket scientist. <laughs> I need somebody to do the books. You know? Yeah. Like, right. So, um, so helping people understand that there is a place for them here, that we need everyone. Absolutely. So, um, you're you're seeing all of this upside in in all of this investment potential for all of this so it's not just like within the space segment because all of this growth and bringing in all of all of these people would require all of the other infrastructure to support those people so so where is that headed so you know there's um like with any industry there the we are utilizing the tools that are available to us. But we're starting, what's fascinating to me over the last couple of years is that we're starting to see um, these service companies pop up, hiring firms that specialize in space, marketing firms that specialize in space, accounting firms that have a space division, law, law firms that have a space division, right? And so you're not having to necessarily reinvent the wheel, um, but just because there's market demands for this kind of specific skill set, we're starting to see all of those services um, develop. Maybe not as quickly as I would like them to, but but they are <laughs> but they are starting to develop. And in fact, um, in about a week's time, I'll be giving a presentation to an extremely large national international law firm that wants to start a space division, um, but they don't know what they don't know, right? And so we love to participate in that sort of stuff because we do need the infrastructure. We do need that backbone so that these companies can grow efficiently and effectively. To hear part two of this interview, please subscribe at starfirecodes.com.